0: Thank you, O Lord, for the gift of your word in the scriptures, and for the life that you call us into together as we listen to you speaking us, speaking to us in your word. We pray that as we listen tonight, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to open our ears and to soften our hearts and to knit our lives together into Christ's body, the church. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Welcome everyone to The Well, especially to those of you for whom this is your first time being here. I'm excited that you're here. My name is Ryan. If you don't know me, I'm the pastor of The Wesley. And if you don't know what The Well is, The Well is effectively a Bible study with also some worship and this weird thing uh, that Christians do called the Lord's Supper, which we'll do later on this evening, which Jesus was kind of talking about there in John chapter 6. But at its heart, what The Well is, is a Bible study. In a typical school year, what we do is focus on a single book of the Bible and try to read all of it or part of it. This quarter, we're focusing on the first four chapters of the book of Genesis. And so even though you got a whole bunch of scripture other than Genesis, uh, that, that central reading there that's kind of sandwiched between Deuteronomy and the Gospel of John is what we're focusing on tonight. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, uh, if you've been around, or just if you have read that, read the first couple of chapters of Genesis before... It might strike you, or interestingly it might not strike you, uh, that there are two stories of creation in these opening chapters. So three weeks ago we began reading the the initial creation account, these six days of creation. We completed uh, that over the course of three weeks with the seventh day of creation, the first few verses of chapter two we talked about last week. That story reads like a complete story. It has a very strong note of finality to it, and it would be normal to think at the end of it that the story of God creating the world is done. And then we get to verse 4 of chapter 2, and God just sort of starts all over again with what appears to be an entirely new story of the way that God makes heaven and earth. This is an interesting fact. Uh, Not one that I'm going to delve into deeply, but it it ought not dismay us that there are these two different accounts. This is not at all the only place that scripture, that God has seen fit to give us a book that tells the same story from a variety of different angles. And even though there are some interesting points of contrast between these stories, those contrasts are ultimately a part of of what I think of as a fabric of a larger coherence in the narrative of who God is. So this second creation story by comparison to the first is far less detailed and comprehensive. The action of the story is less temporally rhythmic, by which I mean you know that that first story proceeds along by these intervals of days in a litany of successive days that are punctuated with this refrain and there was evening and there was morning on the first day and the second day and the third day, etc. And then also, this refrain of God sort of stopping at the end of each day and regarding the goodness of what He's made. There's that rhythm in the first story, but the action of this story is not meted out in quite that rhythmic way. Back in the opening lines of chapter one, darkness hovers or covers the face of the deep, but then light breaks forth. Light is the first specified thing that God makes in chapter one. It, it breaks forth decisively and Across each of the seven following days of creation, the light only seems to grow more radiant and bright. Here, however, in our reading from Genesis chapter 2 tonight, there's a subtly murky quality to the beginning of this second story. I I don't mean to suggest that there's no light in the story, but no light is named. And there's also just something about the way the narrative proceeds that's kind of murky. There's an almost shrouded quality to God's creative work here. Creation's beginning, the things that God is making here, they read as if they're kind of mysteriously open-ended. As things come into being, they certainly, they they begin to exist, and it seems that they have a trajectory that they're on, and yet that trajectory seems somehow less certain or maybe less complete than in the first creation narrative. Whereas the structure of the creation story in chapter 1 has this cosmic and almost overwhelming scope to it. Here, in the second creation story, the frame of the action is much more tightly zoomed in. And where it's zoomed in is really on human beings, or at this point, just on a human being, which is just called the man. It's a far more human-centric story. So even though human beings are clearly the, the sort of, at the pinnacle of creation in the first narrative, the story here seems to be zoomed in on them from the very get-go. In fact, whereas Genesis in Genesis 1, human beings are the very last animate creature to be made, here man is it's exactly reverse. Like man is the very first animal to be made. In a fashion roughly similar to Genesis chapter 1, here in chapter 2 the heavens and the earth have been kind of roughed in it says that uh, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when God began to create the heavens and the earth, right? And so God's got this this raw, unfinished, and unpopulated earth in heaven. But before any other specific thing gets made, God makes man. The world that God is making in this story is very clearly made for man. Like, it's his. It's, it's, It's clearly to be his. The earth waits for man's arrival. In verse five, we read, nothing is yet growing or living. There's no plants yet in the field. And the reason for that is because there wasn't yet a man to work the ground. Just as the raw gloom of the unfinished heavens and earth seemed to wait upon the arrival of man before creation could kind of really get going, so too at the moment man comes to life, he himself already seems kind of unfinished and waiting, waiting upon the arrival, we'll read next week, of woman. Unlike in Genesis chapter one, here man is a singular person rather than a species or a population of human beings. In Genesis chapter one, when God makes humanity, it's implied that he makes an already full or on its way to being full-size population of human beings. Male and female, he creates them, right? Here, however, there's a singular person or character that's being talked about. God, in this story, is portrayed in far more intimate relationship to the process of creation. I think God is very deeply intimate to creation in the first story, too, but he specifically portrayed a much more intimate relationship to the process of making in this second story. He's portrayed almost as a kind of gardener or perhaps a forester or even like a craftsman, like a potter working clay. God here, metaphorically speaking, seems more embodied in the way that this story is crafted. Whereas in Genesis 1, the Lord speaks all things into existence, Here, God seems to shape raw materials that he's already made previously into into other things. So the Lord God forms man from the dust of the ground. He's shaping a material. In both this version, as well as in Genesis 1, animate creatures are described, so this is a point of similarity between the two accounts, as having the breath of life. But here... Man doesn't just have the breath of life. Here, God breathes into the man's nostrils the breath of life. Do you see what I'm saying about how much more intimate the process of making is here in the way the story is told? This is an incredibly visual and intimate scene. The word nostrils, I think, is, is definitely what does it. Um, to breathe into someone's nostrils it's not something you can do from a distance. It's very, it's, it's very intimate. And although God is not literally described as having lungs and lips here, the imagery nonetheless evokes this moment where man comes to life as something like he's being kissed by God, or maybe like God performing CPR on the flesh of this man. Likewise, so in the same way that the process of of humanity being created, that God is intimately involved with that process. Also, we see God here planting stuff, He plants a garden. He places and puts man in the garden. We get two different moments that that happens in this passage. It repeats itself on that note. And again, in all these ways, it's difficult not to think of God here in embodied terms, as doing stuff uh, with his hands, which is not unusual in Scripture. Scripture um, often speaks of God metaphorically in those kinds of terms, as if God were embodied. But the importance, I think of this imagery will become more evident as the story moves on in subsequent weeks. So at verse seven now is where I am. By the time we get to verse seven, what I would suggest is that this is already becoming evident as being a story of the fall. When we get to verse seven, I think it starts to become clear or we start to get a sense of the fact that the second creation story is really the story of the fall. Not that the fall has already happened as of verse 7. It certainly has not yet happened. But what I mean is that even before we get to chapter 3, that the purpose of the second story, in the broadest possible sense, I think it begins to become evident here that the purpose of the story is to answer the question, what happened? What in the heck happened? That's why this story is here pasted on the back of the first story. There is no account of damage a fall in the first creation narrative. And so we can read that story and recognize the world that we live in as not being radically different, at least not in every single way, from the story that's described in, in the very first chapter of Genesis, in the very beginning of chapter 2. And yet, we also can't help but recognize that it is, though, desperately different. than than what's described in that first story. And so the second story begins to become evident in verse 7 as as an account, sort of an answer to the question, what has happened? What has gone wrong? So far, in the last three weeks, I don't know about y'all, but it's taken a great deal of effort to resist a kind of gravitational pull that that question has in our imagination. A gravitational pull toward the fall. It's hard to resist that pull toward answering the question, what happened? As we've been reading along, it's been hard to just say focused on what it was, what creation was, because we're reading the story from the vantage point of our own experience. Like we live in the midst of a fallen world. But here, the gravitational pull of the fall begins to become a literary feature. It's an actual feature of the text and not just something that's coming from our own experience. There's something like foreshadowing that begins to happen in verse 7. One of the places you see it is in the word dust, right? That it's out of dust that the Lord makes man. What this says in a very basic sense is that humanity is is formed out of a strikingly modest material. Already this bespeaks a kind of insubstantiality in our creaturehood, that we're insubstantial. And yet our insubstantiality is made substantial By the gift of God's craftsmanship and by the breath of life. In a broad sense, Dust emphasizes then the same thing that we discussed during week one when we talked about that phrase ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. That God makes everything that there is out of nothing except His own will and His own creativity. Which means that everything that exists other than God doesn't have to exist. It only exists because God made it and God continues to hold it in being, moment to moment. Which means that existence is a gift. That everything that there is, is in some real way a sign of this like overflowing gratuity and abundance of God's love. Um, that's baked into the doctrine of creation out of nothing. And there's something of that that's evident in in the grammar of dust, of God fabricating humanity out of of dust as well. Yet even our reading from chapter 2 tonight, where this word dust appears as this sign, the material of God's creative gift of life, it also already has the ring of death to it. It's impossible for us who have already read the rest of the story not to hear the word dust and hear the echo that races forward into chapter 3, where we'll hear God uttering a description of the cursedness of the fall. He'll say to Adam, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In verses 8 through 9, God plants a garden and places man there, as I already mentioned. And in the middle of that garden, there are the tree of life and the tree of of the knowledge of good and evil. That's two separate trees. They're at the center of the garden, in the midst of it, it says. And so, too, are they at the center of the story that's being told in this second creation narrative. It is toward those trees that the action is already moving. Verse 9 reads, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. That last little bit of description, pleasant to the sight and good for food. let's, Let's look at that for a second. It should be of interest to us that pleasure and desire are original features of creation. It's very easy for us as fallen people to think that That craving and desire just is intrinsically a negative thing, or almost as if it's a a feature of the fall. But pleasure and desire are original. God made the stuff of the world to be pleasing to the sight and good for food. These are sensible pleasures. They're bodily pleasures. It's people's eyeballs. It will see them as good. And it's people's bellies that will want to be filled with what's growing on those trees that God is planting. Um, At this point in the history of their being creation, the satisfaction of desires, bodily desires, the gratification of any pleasure can't lead anywhere except to God the pleasure of the eyes, the filling of the belly, and all of their sensory pleasures and desires, they all lead to God. They all lead to the source of the one who planted those trees and made everything else that human beings might desire. But again, there already is here a kind of literary pull forward to the fall. For this description, pleasing to the sight and good for food, is as true of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as it is of every other tree in the garden. And in chapter 3, those same things, a very similar phrase is going to be mentioned at the moment that Eve and Adam take of the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the visible edible goodness, the pleasingness of the fruit is going to be emphasized in chapter 3 at the moment of the fall. So verse 6 there will read. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So even while we're still in chapter 2, even at the moment that we try to imagine what it, what it would be like to have this simplicity of unfallen desire, desire and craving that can't lead anywhere except to God, Even at that moment in chapter 2, the shadow of the corruption of our desires, of the mutilation of our cravings, is already beginning to fall uh, fall across the page that we're reading here. All right, skipping ahead. I'm not going to say anything about these rivers because I don't know what to say about them. So (laughs) moving on to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. To work it and to keep it. This is a further development of verse five that we already mentioned earlier, right? That creation is waiting for man to get going because it apparently needs a man to work the ground. This is a helpful tie back to what we said about dominion and subduing um, in the the, the creation story of uh, chapter one and the beginning of chapter two. So firstly, we need to recognize that work also is an original part of creation, right? Human beings have work to do uh, it is a uh, an earthly work, a farming-shaped kind of work. Human, uh, human beings are, they're, they're kind of made to be gardeners, it seems like here, right? And cultivation, the cultivation of the earth, interestingly here, is seen as intrinsic to creation instead of as like this violent imposition on creation. I think sometimes even people that like I like to listen to on podcasts, like conservationists that like to talk about how like we need to preserve wild places and restore, you know, the, the damages of the earth, which I'm all about doing that. I think that's great, right? But sometimes we almost have this way of talking as if human beings were like this alien thing on the planet that's just shouldn't, if, it would be better if we never were here in the first place. And that is not at all the way that scripture talks about the world. Scripture talks about the world as something that actually needs to be cultivated by human beings. It doesn't need to be left alone. It needs in some way to be, to be guided and structured um, creatively by human beings. So think for example of like a fruit tree. There is like such a thing as a wild apple tree. I've seen them before. Uh, backpacking in, in the Appalachian Mountains, right? And you can eat apples off of them and sometimes they're pretty tasty. But a lot of times the apples will be really tiny um, because the trees are enormous and unpruned. But if that apple tree were in someone's backyard who knew how to cultivate the apple tree, who knew how to, how to provide it with some structure by, um, by pruning its branches and, and sort of really picking out the best possible blooms on that tree and, and caring for the soil around that apple tree, then the same apple tree, if it were cultivated by the creativity of a human being, would in fact make better fruit, full stop. That's just the case, right? That's the vision of the world that the Bible has, that it needs the cultivation of human beings. Moving on. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man. Um, let's stop there before we continue on with that verse, the rest of that verse. The Lord God commanded the man. is it at all surprising to you to find a commandment before the fall? To find God issuing commandments to an unfallen human being. Commandment is an original feature of creation. Commandment, which is this like authoritative from outside of ourselves, someone saying you may do and you may not do, like rules. Commandment is an original feature of creation rather than a feature of the fall, which suggests that commandment must be for something more than just correction. From the beginning, commandment was for something more than just correction. The commandment in verse 16 and verse 17, it involves eating. So to continue on with that verse, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Here, as in the creation story in chapter one, where we noted that like, The animals that God made are hungry animals. They're animals that eat food. And it wasn't necessary that God make animals be that kind of thing that needed to eat. Here, again, food is really emphasized. When God made human beings, he made them hungry. And the way that God gives the world to man is by giving it to him as food. He gives the world to man by making sure that man is fed. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, and yet there is one thing in all creation that is not given. This, by the way, is really the way that I think you need, when you, when you hear the Lord issuing this commandment, we really need to resist the temptation of thinking that God was just like setting up a trap in creation um, that humanity might fall into and just sort of arbitrarily being like, let's see what happens with this. At the heart of this commandment is the notion of gift. God gives all of the world to humanity. But there's one thing that God does not give, and that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this is verse 17, you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That we die is what begs the question, what happened? However acutely aware you are, of your mortality, or however successfully you ignore it, the knowledge that we die is at some at least kind of subterranean level pretty difficult to not be affected by in some way, shape, or form. And and that's what begs the question, what happened? There's nothing natural about death. We try to talk about it like it is. We try to say that death is just a natural part of life. But I think that even, I think actually the just human experience, not just Christian scripture, I mean, Christian scripture makes this very clear, but I think even just human experience, when it really begins to grapple with the fact of our death, revolts against it. Our nature revolts against it and and cries out, what happened? Life can seem like a kind of farcical trap when you really start to think about the fact that it is going to end sooner or later in death. This is what begs the question, what happened that this story is offering an answer to? Commandment in Scripture, whether it's this commandment here in Eden or commandments in Deuteronomy or commandments in the Gospels, commandments in Scripture are about the choice of life over against the choice of death. And sin is never just a question of incurring punishment for some kind of arbitrary rule. Rather, sin is is about the decision to destroy ourselves. It's about the decision to choose death instead of life. Human beings in Scripture, they are the commanded ones. It's only human beings that are given commandments to follow from the very beginning in Scripture. Almost as if this is baked into our nature, that there's something about the way that God made us, that we are made to be addressed by God with the words of commands, which suggests that commandment is not something that's set over against our freedom. It's not in competition with what it means for us to flourish. It's very easy to think that a commandment is always this kind of imposition that does some sort of violence to our will, and that, that always comes to us as a kind of restriction that's going to deplete our life and our happiness and our freedom and our flourishing. But that commandments are original, that human beings in Scripture are the commanded ones. It suggests exactly the opposite which is that we come into the fullness of our life through finding ourselves addressed by God with commandments and by obeying those commandments. We become fully what we are through active obedience, Genesis seems to suggest, to the submission, and submission to the will of God, a will other than our own will. And that was true even before humanity fell. God forms us out of dust, breathes life into us. Our life, our very being, our existence comes to us as a gift. But the fact that we're commanded means that our existence and our life is a gift that God wants for us to receive actively. God wants us to receive the gift of our life, the gift of our very creaturehood, our existence. He wants us to receive it actively. Willingly. And that also means that God has made us free to reject the gift of life, to choose dust, which is to say, to choose our annihilation, to choose non existence, to choose destruction instead of being. The forbidden fruit is from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But really, though, especially if we're reading this passage in concert with what we've been reading in chapter one. It's only evil that could be something that humanity doesn't already know. If all creation is good and if of necessity, existence is good because it only comes from God. So it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but it's only really evil that could so far be unknown to humanity. That's all that could be sought. In in pursuing this tree. But what evil is, is not a thing. It's nothing. It's non-existence. It's oblivion. And every commandment in scripture from here on out, this original choice will persist. A choice between life and a choice choice between life and death. Every single commandment in scripture is going to continue to retain that Subtext. It's either going to be explicit or it's going to be a subtext. That's always what's being presented to humanity when they're confronted with commandments. So in a book like Deuteronomy, which is an exposition of the law, in Deuteronomy, the warning that we read in Genesis from God, if you eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. It's, it's almost quoted later on in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 30. God says there, if your heart turns away and you will not hear and you're drawn away to worship other gods and to serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you were going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. What you need to get is that the curse, the death that is being warned about here isn't something that's imposed by God as a punishment. It's chosen. Does that make sense? We choose in sin, we choose in disobedience, we choose our own destruction, our own damage. So what does any of this, how does any of this actually address us presently? I think that we can break down what it might mean to interact with this passage at a personal level uh, by focusing in on this concept of dust and on the concept of obedience. So let's start out with that word dust. Not just here, but everywhere scripture reminds us of our finitude, of our finitude. Everywhere scripture wants to remind us of our nature as things that have been made, not as God. Not as something that has to exist, but as created things. And our being made of dust is not in and of itself at all a bad thing. It is not bad. Again, actually it points to the goodness and the gratuity of God's love. It points to the fact that we are, our ourness, our our being is a gift that has no other explanation for it than that God loved us enough to make us. So our our being made of dust is not a bad thing. And yet, as these last words from verse 17 that we just read make soberingly clear, dust also means that we are not very far away from nothing. We're not far removed from nothingness. Let me try to tell a couple of stories to, to maybe put a little bit of flesh on this. My wife is a nurse. She's worked most of her vocation in um, different ICUs. She just very recently started working in a cardiac ICU. And last week, she came home and was very excited to tell me that at work that day that she had, had held a man's heart beating, beating heart in her hands during an open heart surgery. And I had a very unsatisfying reaction to this, as I guess I sort of always do when Holly's telling me stories about stuff she does at work. but. Um, because I, I don't know, I just don't have the stomach for it in the way that she does. But I, I was really like, I don't want to, I kind of just don't want to know about that. Like, I, I had this, like, almost explicit, like, or inexplicable, like, just don't tell me about that. I don't want to know that that's a thing. You know, that just, like, randos might hold your heart when you're at the hospital. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I, I've thought about, like, like what is it? Why, why did I have such a, a strong sort of visceral reaction to that? It has to do with the way that it... it it sort of made poignant to me that we are from dust. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's like, I don't know. I can kind of live as if my life is sort of this taken-for-granted fact, but once somebody is holding the heart of a 30-something-year-old man, which is, you know, I'm 38. This guy whose heart Holly was holding is 30-something. In her hands, there's something about that 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 points... To just how near we are with each passing second, with each beat of our heart, to our heart not being beating anymore. Just how near we are to nothing. She told me that she, she saw the guy the next day when he was in recovery and she had the impulse to go into his room and be like, I held your heart in my hands yesterday. <laughs> Which she decided not to do. Um, but effectively, what she would have been doing, I think in that moment, is being like, you're dust! Somewhat relatedly, I want to find a way to shoehorn a hunting story into this. I told you all last week that I was going to be uh, bow hunting this, this past Saturday during opening, opening day of, of bow season. And uh, indeed, I, I was. That's what I was doing uh, on Saturday. At about 4 o'clock in the morning, I paddled down this little bayou-sized creek way over on the east part of the state. And I climbed into a, a tree that I'd picked out scouting back in the summer, uh, but a tree that I'd never actually hunted before. I crept my way into this tree, and I, I climbed up into it. And even before the sun came up, there were deer all over the place. Like, I saw a crap ton of deer that morning. I almost killed one in the morning, but I could tell as I was seeing all these different deer that, like, I, just, I should have been in that tree over there instead of the one that I was originally in. And so later on that afternoon, I came down, and I moved over to this other tree, and I climbed up, at about 4.30 that afternoon, I was about 20 yards closer to the creek that I would paddled in on, and all of a sudden, there were just like six deer that were just there, uh, out of nowhere. And in a split second, I had this doe standing like perfectly right where I wanted her to be, uh, by the edge of the creek, and I, I shot her. I pulled back my bow, um, arrow hit her, um, and I, I knew almost immediately that I was like, that was good, just from the way that it sounded. She bounded into the creek, and before she got to the other side, I was like, oh, man, it's over, because the way she was just like, I mean, she was going, but she was trying to get out of the water, and I was like, it sounds like she's struggling, and I heard her hit the ground on the the opposite bank and die and breathe her last, literally. Super clean kill. I got down, got the doe, put her in my kayak, paddled back down the river, closer to where my truck was, dragged her up on the bank, and... I just thought about the way that in less than a minute, this deer went from this literally like radiant fullness of life shining in the afternoon sun to being dead in my kayak. And which is what I meant to do. I don't have any regrets about it, by the way, but uh, it's 80 something degrees. So I pulled her up on the bank, I pulled up my pocket knife, I split her sternum open, and I started shoveling out. Everything that was inside of her, you know, blood up to my, my elbows and all that kind of stuff. And I, I, I pulled out her heart to see if I, had, if I had hit her heart. And sure enough, this is the first time I've ever done this, but I had hit not just both lungs, but I, but I could see the arrow hole going right inside one heart, inside one, one side of her heart and out the other. And there I was holding this heart, which is about the size of the heart that's beating in my chest and yours. I mean, Literally, very little difference in the size of a deer's heart and ours. But now not beating anymore. And I think that's a moment where I have the potential to recognize that I'm made of dust. This animal that's about the size of me that was alive and well a minute ago is not now. And here I am holding its heart. Dust, it stands, this word, it stands over against the delusion that we live in most of the time, that we are made of something somehow more substantive or permanent than we actually are. We have this vague sense of importance in our existence, that, that, that our existence is grounded somehow in the importance of our like responsibilities maybe, or our life projects, or the people that depend upon us. For me, I think it's, it's usually good stuff, you know, that makes me think I'm more substantive than I am. You know, you don't, I don't consciously tease out these thoughts, but I think if I forget that I'm dust on a day-in, day-out basis, it's probably because of stuff like, you know, that I'm pastoring the Wesley Foundation, and that's really important stuff. And I'm shepherding my two little kids, and that's really important stuff. But that deer had kids too. I saw her little baby fawn right before I shot her. And my arrow still went through her heart and both lungs like a knife through butter. And I brought her home, you know, and with my, nothing but my pocket knife and a bow and arrow, I shoveled out all the life from inside of her into a stinking heap swarming with flies on the edge of a muddy bank. And when I go back there in December and January to hunt the rut, which I will, in that same spot, when I go to put my kayak in right there, That gut pile's not going to be there. It will be dirt again by then, literally. It'll be dust. And the reality is, I mean, thankfully, there are not dudes in trees trying to put arrows through my chest. There's a lot of other stuff that can kill me, though. What are the delusions of of substance in your life? By, By which I mean, like, what are the places that you might think that Your being is a little further from nothing than it actually is. What are the good responsibilities and projects and relationships in your life? Again, things I'm sure that are good in your life and great and gifts. But do you remember that you're dust? Dust means not just that you're vulnerable to death, by the way, but again, it means that you don't exist by necessity. Your life, your very being is given to you out of the abundant gratuity of God's love. And here's the point of thinking about this. It's not to make you scared that you might die in whichever way. Or that God is going to snap his fingers and all of a sudden take you out of existence either. But it's to recognize that God gives you the gift of your being in such a way, like I said earlier, that you can refuse that gift. You can, re- you can refuse the gift of your own life in little but in cumulative ways. We can revert by, our, by a distorted use of our own freedom, we can revert back to dust, back to non-being. We can destroy ourselves before we're even all the way dead. And this is where the idea of dust flows into this other category of commandment and of obedience Human freedom and flourishing, it requires a life of obedience to the commandments of God. We are made to be addressed by God with commandments. And for us to flourish, we have to be pursuing a life where we're growing in obedience to the Lord's commandments. And that is still true of Christian discipleship. It is not just true of Judaism pre-Jesus, that is true of Christianity the abundant life Jesus wants to give us is still a matter of commandment and obedience. Think about Jesus in the Gospel of John saying, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Or in Matthew 19, think of the story of the rich young ruler. This man that comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, if you would enter life, again, this is a, the question of life and death. If you would enter life, if you'd be alive, keep the commandments. They go on and have a little discussion about basically the Ten Commandments. And the guy's like, yeah, I do all that stuff. And then Jesus addresses the man with even more an even more encompassing commandment. He says, uh, if you would if be perfect, then sell all your stuff, give to the poor, and come and follow me. That man is not willing to obey that command. And so he leaves. He goes away. You see the way that following in that story, come follow me, is a discipleship invitation. But it's a matter of obedience to the word of Christ. Think about the Sermon on the Mount, which is nothing if not an incredible exposition of God's commandments. It's Jesus taking stuff that was already pretty tough in the Old Testament and being like, I'm going to make it even more intense So you heard that you used to get to defend yourself against your enemies, for example. You've heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for the people that do you harm. If somebody screws you over, let them screw you over even more. The Sermon on the Mount is this incredible litany of commandments. And what does Jesus say at the end of it? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, obeys them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Etc., you know the rest of those verses. Christian mission is also still a matter of commandment and obedience. One of those great standard issue evangelism passages, the Great Commission. Right? Go and make, it, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then what? Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Assuming that your life as a Christian, if you are one, is a life that involves discipling other people, making disciples, bearing witness to the gospel, inviting people to follow Jesus, and it should be if you're a Christian. How much is that that process of making disciples? Are you actually teaching people to obey the Lord's commandments? How often, and whatever it means for you to be doing discipleship, are you exposing people to, confronting people with God's commandments and teaching them how to obey those commandments? God addresses us with his commandment because he loves us. I think that love is especially evident in the one like we read from Deuteronomy chapter 30. We hear God yearning for our good when he's like, choose life, Choose your flourishing. God commands us because he loves us. Do we love people enough to address them with the commandments of God? Do we take it for granted that in some way making disciples means telling each other what to do? There's a guy named Pete that used to be an intern here for a couple of years and a student before that. He now is a pastor up in North Carolina and he's going to school. He told me a story over the phone recently about a guy who came to his church randomly one Sunday um, who was like, I don't know, Billy, Billy Bob's cousin or something. And uh, the guy was packing heat very visibly. Um, like he like had a big old gun strapped to his, to his, his belt. And, uh, and Pete, very decisively, I mean, I don't know if I would have done this when I was his age, I'm not sure, which is saying something, because I, whatever, was, didn't, didn't, wasn't holding back a lot. But I still don't know if I would have done this when I was Pete's age. He met the guy at the door and was like, hey, I'm sorry, can you leave that in the truck? Like, you can't come to worship uh, with a big old honkin' gun on your hip. And why did Pete say that? Is it because he's a Democrat? Thankfully, no. <laughs> he has way more interesting reasons for saying that than, like, stupid arguments about gun control. The reason Pete... Among others, said that is because Pete understands that his vocation as a shepherd of people that want to follow Jesus is a matter of calling them into a life of obedience. And we're not like positioning ourselves for answering the summons by Jesus to love our enemies if we're already actively, proactively preparing to slaughter them if they try to slaughter us. And I understand that's tough because I don't want to get shot by some rando at a church service. And I don't think that's entirely out of the. The question of the realm of possibility of something that could happen. We know that that's the world we live in, right? That guy's not nuts to want to carry a gun. But what we're doing in church is learning to follow Jesus, which means we're learning to obey Jesus' commands, which means that preparing to kill our enemies is not something we're going to do inside the church. That man left, by the way. He didn't come to church that morning. He decided, you know, sort of like the rich young ruler, he preferred his gun to Christian worship. And let me tell you something, it's a good thing that he left. It's good that he left. Not because the church doesn't need him, not because he doesn't matter, not because God doesn't love him, but because we're not doing people any good if we're not really presenting them with the choice of life and death. If I tell someone, you can come and be a part of this thing, and I'll make it accommodate you, But the way that I accommodate you is letting you keep harming yourself, letting you keep living disobedience that's destroying you. I'm not doing you any favors. And so it's better that you know that you've rejected the summons rather than that you're lured into this false sense of I don't know what, that it's fine, that you can have your disobedience and your salvation too. Does that make sense? It's good that guy left because maybe he can come back. I think so often the reason we justify, or how, the way we justify not confronting other people with Christ's commands, even though that said, Jesus said that's an intrinsic part of evangelism, I think so often the reason we do that is because we think it's our obligation to make sure no one ever leaves. And I get that. I don't like it when people leave, and I sure as heck don't want to be responsible for someone getting the wrong idea about Jesus. I don't want to distort Jesus' love in any way, shape, or form. But Jesus is fine with folks leaving if the reason they're leaving is because they're refusing to obey his commandments. Do we want to be told what to do ourselves? It's weird if we don't, actually, want to be told what to do. As Christians, that's what I'm talking about. Because there are so many places in our lives that we do definitely want to be told what to do. Like, if you've ever wanted to be great at playing a musical instrument, you wanted somebody to tell you what to do you got somebody to teach you. If you ever wanted to be excellent at a sport that you recognized in yourself you had the potential to be great at, you knew you weren't going to be as great as you could be unless someone told you what to do. So you went to practice and you got a coach. And you submitted to a set of of rules, agreed upon ways of doing things so that your body and your mind could be put through the rigors it needed to be so that you could become the kind of athlete you wanted to be. Christian spirituality and pretty much Every human endeavor recognizes the need to be told what to do by other people. In Christian spirituality, we we have a history of recognizing that we need to be addressed as nakedly by the word of God as we can in the sort of closet of prayer. Just me and Jesus in my quiet time. Absolutely, we need to do that. But we also need the, the body of Christ to be authoritative in our lives, to speak into us in ways where we're not always the ones by ourselves deciding what we do or don't do. Robert is learning how to shoot a bow right now, which is I think is pretty great. We shot the bow in the backyard the other day a little bit, and uh, I wasn't too worried about this yet, but one of the things I'm going to tell him to do, and maybe somebody else already told him to do, is to be sure he doesn't white-knuckle the bow. The very natural thing to do when you go to shoot a bow is to think you got to wrap your hands around it because you're drawing back maybe as much as 70 pounds of weight and you feel like you really need to hang on to that sucker. So what your hand wants to do is to hold on to it but if you're ever going to be any good at shooting you're going to have to learn how to barely hold that thing at all actually and you're going to learn to do that a lot more quickly if there's someone there that can say hey don't grip the bow like that. Only let it touch this teeny tiny part of your thumb And when you start to try to learn to do that, you're not going to feel like it's even physically possible because your brain doesn't want to do it that way. But that's how you get good at shooting a bow. We don't have to understand why or how a commandment should or can be followed. Always. I'm not saying that you're not allowed to ask why, but you don't always have to already get it. The grace and joy, there, there actually is grace and joy in being told what to do, though, even if you don't get it. Because if the person who's speaking to you is trustworthy, you can take it on their authority. That they know where to lead you and know how to teach you. Maybe we think we have theological reasons for downplaying commandments and obedience. After all, doesn't all of this make Christianity sound like like Judaism or something? Like maybe we're saved through adherence to the law. Doesn't all this come dangerously close to works righteousness? Doesn't grace mean... The commandment can't possibly be as important as what I'm saying it is. Well, the Bible seems to think otherwise just based off what we've already noticed. We've got verses in addition to the ones we've already talked about like James where we read that faith without works is dead. Dudes like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who seem to have his crap together when it comes to following Jesus has said things like, have said things like, only the obedient believe and only believers obey. Commandment and salvation by faith. Obedience to commandments and salvation by faith. These things, they cohere. They're not opposed to each other. And the reason for that is because obedience to God's commandments demands faith. Commandments are always also a promise from God about what will lead to our life instead of our death. If you're going to obey Jesus you absolutely are going to have to put your faith in him. And ultimately, what you're going to have to put your faith in is that he was raised from the dead and that he's going to raise you from the dead. Because that's obedience to Jesus is ultimately going to lead you where? Actually, not ultimately, every day. Where is Jesus going to lead you? To take up your cross. So if you're going to obey Jesus, you're going to have to grow in faith. Because it's not always obvious that Jesus' commandments Lead to life. We can't always see how doing what Jesus tells us to do is gonna make us be more fully alive. It oftentimes looks like exactly the opposite of that. Right? Like that doing what Jesus tells is gonna get you killed. That doing what Jesus says is gonna make you way less safe than you were before. Like doing what Jesus says is gonna make you have way less acceptance than you would if you fudged on it a bit. Can we be honest about the fact that so often? The deathliness in our lives, the places in our lives where we know we're not really alive, that what causes that deathliness is not really that mysterious or complicated, but the, that deathliness is caused by our disobedience, by places of disobedience that we're tolerating as if they were acceptable. Can we be honest about the fact that so often our disobedience isn't just a matter of our distorted desires, you know, that we want certain things too much or that we want things in the wrong way, but that our disobedience so often is grounded in distrust of the one who's commanding us, the one that's inviting us into obedience. We don't trust them. On the other hand, is there a way that we can find our way back to the obedience of faith here this evening? I think probably we can. Because this is a place where we might realize how good and right it is that when God's plan to restore a fallen world came to fruition, that the way that plan eventually became manifest to us is by God setting before us the choice of life and death once more, and setting it before us as a choice of food, actually. As a choice of food. Because after all, here at this table, Jesus speaks to us in those words we read from John's gospel. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall have no life in you. Here, we encounter, even on this other side, of Eden, on this side of the fall, here we encounter the tree of life, right here, at this table. Because Jesus, having become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, was nailed to a tree, planted in the ground of this world, like some weird tree in a garden, so that he might offer us the gifts of his flesh and his blood as food and drink. In the food and drink of this table, Jesus promises to give us life. And he promises even to carry us beyond the dust of our deaths. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink.